Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. A couple of weeks ago, we took the show on the road to the Warner Theater in Torrington to begin a series of conversations with prominent Connecticut women. It's called Making Her Story. And our first guest is Cindy Bigelow, president and CEO of Bigelow Tea based in Fairfield. Bigelow is the third generation in her family to run the company. I asked her about her journey to success. She says it all began with her grandmother, Ruth Campbell Bigelow. We taped the conversation before an audience that included her parents and daughter. Yeah, it's a fun story. Um, and it's fun as a female running a business that was started by a female, obviously my grandmother. She was a, originally an interior designer um, and, and a quite successful one. And my uh, grandfather was in publishing. This is so funny that I'm sharing the story in front of my parents because if I say anything wrong, he's going to correct me. So let's just go with whatever I say tonight, Dad, if that's okay. Um, but uh, anyway, when the Depression hit, um, they lost everything. And um, it was a very stressful time. Uh, my father shared stories about what that kind of stress is like. And um, so she found an old colonial recipe for tea uh, with a friend and they worked on it. And she, the thing that I love is she was a copious note writer and she talks about how she wants to get in with a consumable but not a perishable. And she thinks there's not a great tea in the United States. This is gonna be great. So she's gonna come up with a new tea. And so really we're the family that started specialty tea when she found this recipe. She brought it to a group of friends. The next day they said it was a source of constant comment. And that's how, uh, that's how it started. It was that simple. <laughs> and believe me, it wasn't easy to get it going. <laughs> she started this company with the help of your grandfather in 1945. Yes. Unusual to have women entrepreneurs that are trying different things, she, taking that risk? She really, yeah, she definitely was an entrepreneur. I mean, she'd started the interior design business. So this is a woman that started one business and now she was starting another. And, but it was very rough, very, very rough start. Um, uh, her sister, Lois, I love this story, and if it's on one of the top of the boxes, it's called When Mama Moved the Pony Stable. And Ruth uh, is talking to Lois, Ruth Campbell, my grandmother, and she's saying how hard this is and how discouraged she is, and she's really down. And Lois shares a story with her when Mama moved the pony stable. It's a relatively long story, but how they wanted to keep this pony. They lived in Providence, and so my great-grandmother with horses moved this little barn all the way through Providence up this hill so that when they moved their pony name, what was the pony's name, Dad? It was the cutest name, Bottoms. I think it was Bottoms. And that night when Bottoms got to be in his pony stable, no one could believe that they moved it from one side of Providence to the other. And that was the motivation that Ruth needed to just say, you know what, I can do this. If she can move a pony stable, I can keep trying. <laughs> what was your grandparents' relationship like? Well, I was six, unfortunately, when my grandmother did pass, and he was 18 years her senior, um, and uh, he was a quiet man um, and a good man. She was a very strong woman. She'd give you the shirt off your back, but I understand she would also might rip it off if she was angry. <laughs> um, 
And he was very supportive of her. He was extremely, from what I know from the stories, he was very, very supportive of her. She was very, very loving. Believe me, I have great memories up until when six years old, I still have them. So it was a very interesting dynamic. He was quiet and she was, I don't know if I'd call the Tasmanian devil, but she was, she was, she was, she was strong. Your grandparents started the company. Tell us about the role of your parents and how they really pushed the envelope in this special oh, company. Oh, well, I mean, no, no disrespect to my grandparents. They started it with constant comment. It was great. And, uh, but it was a rough, slow start. And it was really, um, and, and she did pass early, right? So she, she was, um, I think, 67 years old or something along those lines. So then my father ran the business from 1959 on. And really, it's under his leadership that they really expanded the line. Then he was the one that put us into foils. And then we added herbs. And so, I mean, really, the business that we are today is, is due to my mother and my father. But they also know that it germinated from that seed of constant comment that without that, they wouldn't have done what they've done, and I wouldn't be able to do whatever the heck I've done, <laughs> if there's anything I've done. What do you remember about your, your family's company as a young girl and, and how um, it influenced you to then get into the family business? Well, one thing I will say, I was very blessed. Obviously, I know it's a different era, but I always knew that my, my, my mother was home when I was growing up, but my father was always there for me. Like, it was a crazy thing. If you needed it, you were driving to college or you were doing this. You do, he was always available. We went to Carvel on Sunday night. So I only, I kind of, you know, it was a little bit of leave it to beaver. I kind of grew up in this kind of very special family environment. And so I didn't know any better. I just know that he worked. My mother was very adamant that you couldn't talk about business at dinner. That was her thing. So he'd get a little jacked up and she'd say, no, we don't do that. So really, I mean, it never influenced it in a way that I wasn't, you know, it was never anything that I didn't look at as a positive. And when I would come home from school and high school, you know, they'd have, they tested tea because that's where my mom was home still while I was in high school and they would test tea in the kitchen. So I would come in and they'd have all these white cups and my uh, godparents were there and Bill Magner was there and they were all drinking different teas and I'd walk in, get my little snack and see you later. <laughs> Bye-bye. Have fun. When did that change, your interest? Was it when you were in college? No, actually in high school. In high school, I thought, isn't this cool? I was thinking, you know, I kind of like the whole business concept. And um, I said, you know, I like this. They had no idea. They Literally none. They, they said when I finally called them to say I'd like to work at the company, you know, they had to pick themselves up and say, um, excuse me, what? Um, but I just thought that was very cool. I love what they did. It was a family business. I used to be at the Christmas parties and give away little presents to all the employees and kiss and hug everyone, which is so my personality. My mother would be like, you're going to get sick. Stop kissing everybody. <laughs> and, um, and I just loved, I loved the people. They were so nice. And I like nice. Um, and then when I went to college, I knew I wanted to go to the business. So I did marketing and finance in undergrad. Then I got a job for Joseph E. Seagram's in sales. And I have to tell you, selling liquor is very fun. Um, oh, tea is much better though. Much better. <laughs> yeah. Tea. Um, no, it's great. I love it. So, and then I, I decided, um, after a few years working, um, with Seagram's, which was a great experience down in Florida, that, um... I called my parents and I said, hi, I'd like to go to graduate school. And they were like, really? I said, yeah, and I'd like to come into the business. And they said, really? And my mother said, okay, you just got to major in finance. I said, okay. <laughs> so I majored in finance marketing and a little organizational behavior and the rest was history. 
So by this time, you grew to like tea? I love, I, yeah, no, I mean, tea is great. I, I, I've learned to actually really appreciate tea, and this is a true story, as years have gone on. I've gone through um, a great transformation of trying to understand the, the, where tea comes from. I've traveled the world really going to the gardens because I knew that that was really essential. I, I don't want to just be a CEO of anything. I want to be a CEO of a product that I really know and love passionately. So give us an idea. Do we, we take it for granted. We go to the store, oh. we buy our favorite tea, we open it up, we make it in the morning, maybe after work. Tell us about tea. We know that it comes from Asia. A lot of what you buy is from India, Sri Lanka. You know, it's, it would, this would be another hour lecture. You can invite me back in a month. But <laughs> I can only just say to you that a cup of tea is not a cup of tea is not a cup of tea. And I know so many people, I've been doing this a long time, my parents have been doing this a long time, people say, oh, it's the, this price, this look on the package, and this name, so this has got to be, you know, whatever. Oh, and if it's $5 a box, it's got to be better. And our whole business model is really about getting the finest hand-picked teas from gardens that we know and trust that we've been buying for 30 and 40 years. And that is the mission that I've undertaken over the last eight years, is really going to those gardens, and each garden is so different, and they're run so differently. So when I was in India down in Assam, I'm in beautiful gardens, you know, seeing these beautiful, beautiful bushes with these beautiful people. We're doing our thing, and the individual that we buy our tea from is with us, and I said, what about the garden over across the street? He goes, oh, no, 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 no. We don't buy from him. And I go, why don't you buy? And he goes, we don't check. We don't trust his MRLs, which means they don't trust the pesticides that they're putting on it. So you really need to make sure that you understand. The gardens we buy from do not use herbicides. They don't need to because they understand the small um, weeds that are growing underneath it are actually helping the bushes. And so they're providing the nutrients. So it's really about understanding the gardens. And I'll, I really will say this. I will put our cup of tea against anybody. Our Earl Grey, the oil of bergamot from Italy. It's in a beautiful organic oil of bergamot. It's, it, it, a cup of tea is not a cup of tea is not a cup of tea. You mentioned your parents really helped uh, move the company forward from the time when your grandmother came up right. with constant comment. But if you're interested, Cindy Bigelow is all over YouTube uh, explaining about <laughs> the quality tea. Yeah. But that's something that you really embraced, this idea well, of marketing it in a you know, certain way. They sort of, you know, when they passed the baton, their whole mission was quality, right? That's what they did. It wasn't about social media and all the creative marketing that you have going on. They did a lot of good marketing. They used Art Link Letter, television, great stuff. Um, and I realized that that foundation was what I needed to build from, so that could never change. So the first thing I had to do is get the, the blending division to understand that what, how important that job is and that you know when they're not looking or I'm not looking, we can't ever lower that quality. And then from there to do that sort of more creative, relevant marketing for today's customer and today's environment, et cetera, but never losing sight of the quality of the quality of the tea. So that's definitely what I got from them and I really appreciate it because people throw that word around, word around. Oh, quality, oh yeah, it's quality. Just because I say it's quality doesn't mean it's quality. I mean, it really, that doesn't work like that. So I really had to understand the essence of that word and I feel today now, um, you know, 30 years in the business that I can really, I understand what a quality cup of tea is. And I will never compromise, David and Eunice. <laughs>
David and Eunice Bigelow are the parents of Cindy Bigelow, president and CEO of Bigelow Tea in Fairfield. I interviewed Cindy before an audience at the Warner Theater, the first in a series we're calling Making Her Story. More of our conversation after the break, including how Cindy's been perceived in the corporate world as a female CEO and her advice to young people. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, and this is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're bringing you Making Her Story. It's a new series where we hear from prominent Connecticut women. Our first guest is Cindy Bigelow, president and CEO of Bigelow Tea. We taped her conversation at the Warner Theater in Torrington earlier this month. I asked her what it was like to start working for her parents when she was 26 and how employees reacted to her as a member of the Bigelow family. Um, you know, here's the deal. I mean, let's be honest, a little blonde comes in there all boppy. You know, you're going to know you're going to have some people that are going to whatever. And you know what? It just, I I don't know. Maybe I just had an inner peace and an inner confidence that I knew that my mission was pure. And I just knew I had to work harder. But that was my nature anyway. As a student, you know, I didn't know anything. But, you know, I had to sit in that front row and I needed to get the best grade possible. And it didn't make a difference what anybody else was getting. That's why when I talk to students, I'm always talking about, come on, give it your all, even if you don't like that teacher. Because when you get into the work environment, you know, you're, you're, you're going to have bad teachers and bad um, projects. You still got to succeed. So when I went in there, I had people that didn't like me and wanted to see me trip up. But I didn't hold it against them. I didn't take it really personally. It, it hurt. I was young. But I just kind of knew that just, just work through it, Cindy. Just work through it. And I don't know where that came from. Maybe it was genetic. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely had some people that were not rooting for me, and then I had some very good people that were rooting for me. But either way, I had to put in a lot of hours. Before I had children, um, there is no question I worked every single night till 8.30. But I didn't have children, so it was okay. You know, um, I modified that clearly after I had them, but yeah, I had to work hard. I had to work hard. It, it, it's not always fun with the last name. It can be kind of nasty. You mentioned the doubters. If you were a man, do you think they would have felt the same way? Um, you know, probably not. Um, you know, I think, uh, I mean, I'm just assuming, right? We don't really know. I can't ask them. Are you meaner to me because I'm a female? <laughs> Please tell me the truth. Um, I think that was the case. You know, I also have a very out there disposition. I'm out there. I don't have a lot of, you know, whatever. I'm like, hey. I can't tell. I'm like, hey, we're all friends, aren't we? Are we all friends? They're like, are you kidding me, honey? Um, and I think that that made it tougher. You know, they were like, oh, my God, she must be stupid. You know, that's okay. I knew I, I wasn't. You became the CEO in, in 2004. What was that transition like? Uh, your father, your parents taught you a lot. Well, that wasn't easy. I mean, I had a, I know it sounds funny because, you know, I'm a Bigelow and whatever, hello, but I had to fight for a lot of positions. I had to negotiate with my father. We, we, he didn't want to give me a lot of them. He was like, you can't have that. I go, why? Because they think you're going to do this and they think you're going to do that. I'm like, really? So I had to prove myself along the way. I kind of became what I call the problem, the troubleshooter. So if there was a department that wasn't running well and we had leadership issues there, I would turn to my father and my mother and I'd say, like, I'd like to run that department. And then I had to prove myself and I had to sort of share with them what my thought process was and why I thought I could do well with it. And there were some areas that were, 
hard for them to say yes to. Um, I was pretty persistent, and they had the faith in me. And, and I think every department that I ran, it actually did turn around pretty well. And, but I also had to learn to prepare for obsolescence, because I knew I was only going to be in each department maybe two or three years. And so I had to build departments that were strong, that when I left, they would stay strong, which is a really cool way to operate, because you're always you know, building to move on. It's a different way than if you know you're going to be staying there forever or you're building to try to stay there forever. You remember the day when it was announced that you were going to take over? Well, we didn't really do it like that. We had a little more politics going on than just here you are. I mean, there was, I think, some memo that went out. Um, and I didn't need it like that anyway. It was really, I mean, it's a family business. That transition should be seamless. Um, it should be, you know, really... A, a passing of a baton based on love. So it really, and skill, please, God. Um, so I, it really wasn't like that. But I didn't really recognize the responsibility because I'd always had people sort of that I could, I was reporting to as I was moving up. And then it did hit me, you know, 2006, 2007, okay, it's on your shoulders, honey. This is pretty serious. A lot of pressure because this is a family business. You didn't want to let the legacy of your parents, also your grandparents, down? Well, I don't know if I looked at it as much as that, although that's a really nice way to look at it, and I said I should have said I did. Um, I really looked at it more that we had, at that point, now we have 350, but we had 300 families dependent on the success of this business. And... Um, you, failure really wasn't an option. You know, you were third generation. Uh, this, is, this is your family's heritage. You've got these beautiful people that have given everything to you and your family. I mean, everything. Um, so it was, it was big. It was, a, it, it was, it's big. <laughs> it's a big one. It's an important distinction. You do a lot of talks, and I, I watched a few of them on YouTube. And you don't call the people that work for your company employees. They're family. They absolutely are family. And I recommend for anyone who is uh, any form of employer, whether it's one, two, or three, you're not just the person that's walking on to the facility or the site or the location. You represent their families because the, the strategy that I've always shared with the team that reports to me is if you can create an environment, and believe me, it's not nirvana every day. Let's get over that one. But if you can create a positive environment, they can go home to their families and be in a positive situation as well. And it's like the, the ring when you drop that one drop in that water and the next ring and the next ring. So I work very hard to create an environment that is fun, energetic, work hard, demanding, so that when you go home, I want you to feel good and to bring that into your family's life. So, you, you know, you've got health care, you, you're putting food on the table. You, you hire a family. You don't hire a person. And the people you're hiring from the Fairfield area, all different ages? Well, it's funny. We didn't really hire a lot from Fairfield initially. Um, but we're hiring a lot more from Fairfield. We even have people commuting from New York. And I think as businesses have been changing, and I don't mean they're all leaving Connecticut, but I mean those that are changing in New York City and in Connecticut um, culturally, so they pay more than we do because we're, you know, we are a family business and, you know, there's only that much margin in a tea bag. So we pay, we pay competitively, but we don't pay like a lot of these companies do. So what do we provide you? And it's got to be that environment. And we're getting some amazing people literally knocking at our door in Fairfield to work at our company. That's a, that's a new phenomenon. I'm very excited about that, actually. 
And what kinds of jobs? Oh, we've been doing so much hiring. It's whoa. Um, we have very little turnover. Um, we, the average year of employment at Bigelow T is, um, I think, 19 or 20 years. But we're hiring a lot because I know, isn't that nice? <laughs> that started with my parents. But um, so we have a lot of people that work for us a very long time. That is, that is for sure. But we're hiring a lot because we're growing. And so, you know, and I have to prepare for the future. So I need to bring in people that are going to take me to the next level, take the company to the next level. So at any time, there's 10 positions open in leadership positions and there's, you know, um, manufacturing positions that are open. So we're, we're hiring. We have a facility, Louisville, uh, Boise, Idaho, and also here. So at any time, there's 30 or 40 people for our manufacturing facilities and, you know, 10 in the office area. It's great. It's good. It's a lot of hiring. Bigelow has a great retention rate. How much of that um, has to do with the fact that you as the boss are in tune with the fact that you know, people that are working for you are real people. They have lives, family, and they have to have that balance. I would say a high percentage, to be honest, because of the family. Um, we hire a lot of young people now, and, you know, I'm so sick of hearing, oh, you know, these millennials, they don't want to stay anywhere. I'm like, yes, they do. They just want to feel like everybody else does. We make these millennials sound like there's these creatures that came out of something with different opinions. That's not true. They're just more vocal about the fact that I'm going to treat them the same way I'm going to treat an employee that's 30 years in the business. And that is that, you know, I want them to feel wanted. I want all of them. I want them to be excited. I want them to know I need them. I appreciate them. If we lose somebody, especially tend to, if it tends to be more, it would be in the younger crowd, that vice president of that division is sitting down with me, and we are talking about, did you see that? Why did that happen? Were you not doing that full engagement? You know, one of my most fun things I like to do is if I'm running to a meeting and I'm always running everywhere, and I'll say, hey, you know, Jane, you want to come with me? Come on, we're going to test a new line of teas. Or, hey, we're having a brainstorming session on. And they're like, wait, what, what, what? And then they come on in, and, you know, it, it's you got to make it exciting. It's got to be fun. Hmm. Ugh. <laughs> Who doesn't want to work where it's not fun? <laughs> I mentioned work-life balance. How did you... Uh, deal with that, especially, again, you're the mother of two children. Um, I was very strict on my travel, um, and I was uh, very fortunate to be very focused so I could do what I needed to do in a very short period of time, and then I blessed with my, no, nothing personal, my dad has energy, but my mother has endless energy, and so I could come home and be with my kids. I could work a part-time schedule. I could work long days, maybe 13, 14-hour days to make up for the day I was not or days I was home with them. So I was compartmentalized a lot. I minimized my travel, and I scheduled things down to the second. So I could do art in the classroom. I could read in the classroom. You know, I could do all kinds of things. I could be on a field trip. So I, I was a schedule maniac. I mean, I think... You know, no disrespect to men. I think women are amazing, crazy schedulers. That is a great skill set. Fantastic. You know, because if it's on my calendar, it's locked and loaded. So that's how I did it. You know, but they, they eventually figured it out. Like at one point in middle school, David says to me, 
you're the only mother that works. No other mother works in all the town. I go, I think there's a few other mothers that work in town, David. I mean, just to say. But, you know, they, 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 they noticed that you were working. But I tried to really work hard to be home for them as much as, much as humanly possible. You had an approach, but did you ever feel guilty? No. 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 I, it was a family business. I often did say, and this is true, if it wasn't a family business, I don't exactly know what I would have done, but I had a mission for these people. So I couldn't. No, no, I did not feel guilty. You took over uh, the family company. What about your children? <laughs> One's in the audience. <laughs> Hi, honey. <laughs> no, here's what I've always said. I had no pressure to come into the business at all. Um... And this is, has to be something that you love to do. So if you love your children more than you love anything in this world, which I do and my children will both tell you that, it's really about them finding their passion and their desire, their dream. Um, if at one point they turn around and they say, you know, this is something I'd like to experiment with, I'm ready. If they have their own journey, I'm ready. Um, it's just really about love and, you know, loving them more than anything else. Is that the advice you'd give all young people that you talk with? Uh, there's an emphasis uh, these days on finding the job that you love or following the passion, but that's not always the case when people get out of school. They're well, looking to pay their bills. Well, I have to say, it, excuse me, Megan, no disrespect, this word passion in young people really annoys me. I mean, they make it sound like at 22, 23 years old, you're supposed to know what your passion is. That's ridiculous. You can't know what your passion is. You're supposed to just experiment. Like I always say to my kids, try, try, try. You're going to learn just as much from the boss you don't like or the job you don't like. And passion grows over time. I was very blessed to be the, the speaker at Fairfield graduate, not undergraduate. And I know the kids thought I was nuts, but I was like, this whole passion thing, what is that? I mean, I, mean, I remember... 15 years ago in the business, the president at the time looked at me and he said, you know, you don't really have any fire in your belly. Well, if I had any more fire in my belly now, people couldn't even work with me. <laughs> so all I'm saying is if you have your passion, God bless you. You're amazing. You go. But if you don't, it is totally cool. Like, relax. It'll come over time. With, you know, there is a benefit to getting older. I know no one wants to hear that. But one of the benefits of getting older is that you kind of just sort of understand things. You see things better. You make better connections. You understand what your mission is supposed to be. So, yeah, I just say try things, enjoy it, feel good, and have a balanced life. I mean, I think a lot of these young kids today are like, I'm supposed to work 80 hours a week or I'm not working. I'm like, where'd that one come from? So, you know, it's a long road. I was talking to my son the other day. I said, David, do you know how long you're going to be working for? Do you know how long you're going to be working for? Maybe you don't want to think about it. But it's a long number of years. you got to do some element of balance and pacing. So, yeah, that's how my thought on passion would work. <laughs> Just give yourself time. Experiment. Try. What do you like? What do you like? What don't you like? I feel like I should interview Megan now. On, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> the advice your mother gave you. No, I told her that, right? I would say to her, and she'd be like, no, I need my passion. <laughs> you found a way to make it work in terms of balancing your, your family. Uh, you've 
you've kept your family's business successful, but what have been the perceptions that you've encountered as a female CEO? We just did a show, and there's a lot of women in the audience, but we just did a show the other week about the fact that in this country, 6% of women are, are leaders in Fortune 500 companies. Yeah. When you're looking at boards, there are very yeah. few women, very few women that are being promoted, even yeah. though they deserve it. What were the perceptions you encountered, and what's your advice to women here? Well, I guess it's best to take it outside of Bigelow, right? I've been on a lot of boards, a lot of committees, um, been in a lot of leadership positions, and different, different whatever. And it's not uncommon for me to walk into a room of all blue suits, all guys in blue suits that um, notice that a woman has walked into the room, but, you know, they really don't really want to hear what you have to say. And I would only say to you that that inner peace that I was able to grow up with, you should keep with you because you do know the answers. You do have the information. And uh, I was on a panel in Chicago with uh, an individual who couldn't be more clearly a chauvinist. And I was very comfortable with it because I knew over time I'm going to, when appropriate, I'm going to speak. And at the end, you know, I was, I was supporting what he was saying because I don't have an ego. I mean, I'm a very aggressive, strong person, but it's not about ego. So let's call him Fred. Fred would say something. And I'd say, Fred, that's a great point. I'd like to add to that. And, of course, now Fred's like this. <laughs> I mean, really, they're very easy to manipulate. But, um, and, uh, and I'd be like, Fred, you know, what do you think about this? Like, I found this to be really successful. And Fred's like, that's a great idea, Cindy. I'm like, yeah, I thought you'd think so, Fred. And by the end, Fred's like, I would love to work with you. You're great to work with, blah, 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 blah. And I'm okay with that. It's totally fine. You just have to have that inner peace to relax. Don't compete. Do not compete. It's stupid. Use your skill sets to enhance and complement the people around you and help them get to a better place together as a team. And when they see you're going to do that, nothing personal, guys love to work with a woman because they make them feel good. They're like, oh, yes, I'm pretty whatever. Don't get me wrong. I can slice and dice and ginsu knife so fast you don't know what hit you. Uh, I mean, um, but that's not the norm, okay? That is, that is the side that they know if they go too far, they don't want to mess with me. The little Tasmanian devil will let them know that's not appropriate. But for the most part, it's about really bringing out the best as a team and giving, you know, the um, support where the support's needed, the compliment where the compliment's needed, the constructive criticism when it's needed, and just being really comfortable being part of the party. And eventually, it's not even eventually, you, you get to the front of the classroom. I mean, you just do because, you know, people do want to follow people that they do eventually realize has some good thought process, good philosophies, good strategies. And what about mentorship? Um, as women, do we do enough to help each other? That's such a great question. I was um, with uh, these uh, other female CEOs. Um, I don't even know where I was in Connecticut, but I never know half the time where I am. But anyway, so we're in this audience of, I don't know, hundreds of people. And so we're answering questions from the audience. And mind you, I've been in a family business, right, for 30 years. And this one woman in the audience says, why are none of you addressing the fact that no women help women get to higher level positions? And I didn't know what to say. And these two CEO women said, absolutely. And they started sharing their stories. So I do know, I don't have personal experiences with that, but I witnessed a room of 400 people talk about the fact that there's not a lot of women that actually help promote other women. Again, I don't, that's not necessarily been 
something that I've been personally exposed to because, you know, I was getting there and no one was getting in my way. But um, I know that that's a big issue, that women are not helping mentor women appropriately. Did you think that maybe you could do more to help women around you? I, um, and I hope this is not wrong, I try not to really separate men and women. Um, I like to not think of my, obviously I'm a female, okay. But I, I try to think of myself as a leader, and it sounds nice, but that's really how I do believe. And I try to work with people accordingly. So I'm not, I mean, and I work with each person individually. So if Fred really operates better this way and Sue, not because Sue's a female and Fred's a male, but Fred's personality does better this way and Sue's personality does that way. So I work with each person individually. Um, and, and I, so I'm not really focused on, oh, let's do this. And I probably should do more of that. I will say that our, there is, um, Six vice presidents report to me. There are two females out of the six, so as a percentage, you know, that's good. Um, but I didn't think of it like that. I just hired the best person. It happened to be two females. Who were your role models? Um, well, clearly, um, well, I have to say that they're here, right? <laughs> I mean, how are you going to get out of this one, Cindy? No, but if uh, they're not here... Uh, my father was my role model for sure in many, many ways. Um, just because he was so sort of humble and not affected and kind to everyone and real um, and honest and smart. Uh, yeah, so he was my role model. He was a person that I really try to emulate in the business environment. And my mother was the greatest lesson she gave me was, you know, first of all, you know, don't talk business all the time in your family setting and also never go to bed angry, talk everything through. And my mother will chase me down if I'm upset, you know, what's wrong, Cindy? What's wrong, Cindy? And she always made me talk it out. And so that's a great skill set that I'm still always trying to develop. I don't know if I've gotten as good as she is on that one, but so they definitely were. Um, and then I just try to pick something from everyone around me. Some of my best role models, which will remain unnamed, were individuals that um, I didn't like how they treated people. I didn't like how they would go to two people with the same assignment. Like, what's that all about? And uh, so I've learned a lot from that. I actually was just down in West Virginia with a group of kids, and uh, we have these kids that are on our teams, and I literally said to the kids in the van driving to the, the home we were working on, guys, I know you're young, you're only in high school, but you can now really start to look around at the advisors here and you have to say to yourself, what do you want to be like? Which advisor do you say, that's the kind of person I want to be when I grow up? That's the kind of person I want to work for? That's the kind of person I want to be as a, as a boss? I said, start now in high school and decide who do you want to be as a leader one day? That's Cindy Bigelow, president and CEO of Bigelow Tea, based in Fairfield, Connecticut. She's the first woman we're featuring for a new Where We Live series called Making Her Story. When we come back from the break, she'll answer some questions from the audience at the Warner Theater. And Cindy will also share a very emotional conversation she had with her employees. She calls them family. That's after the break. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You're listening to a conversation where we live taped at the Warner Theater earlier this month. It's the first Making Her Story, a series of conversations we're having with prominent women in Connecticut. Our first guest, Cindy Bigelow, president and CEO of Bigelow Tea. Cindy's very candid about her business, her family, and as we found out, politics too. Well, here, here's what I'm going to say. 
if I have a strong political view, it's not a Republican and Democrat thing. If you know me, who I am as a leader and a kind of person I am and my core values, I look to all leadership to have the same core values. So if I see leadership that is not demonstrating the core values that are, I think are so important, and I'll give you an example inside the company. Um, there's so many times I have an opportunity to speak to all the employees together. And they're so easily influenced because they trust me. So if I go a little bit this way, they're going to follow. So if I turn a subject into something that's negative or not kind or not inclusive, they're going to just go that direction. If I share honestly the issues and I feel that we also need to be looking at it with this way with hope and with optimism, then they're going to follow me. So politically, that's what I'm going to follow. I want leaders that are kind, inclusive, caring, honest. So yeah, I have opinions, um, but they're not this different, any different standards that I hold myself to. I would never expect anything from anyone that I do not expect from myself. Was that politically correct, people? <laughs> you run a business in a country where we have a president who talks a lot about wanting to help businesses in this country. What's your take on his leadership style and the perceptions as you travel around the world for your company? Don't worry, I'm not going to say anything crazy. Here's what I'm going to say, though. This is a true story. And again, and I'm sure there's people in the audience that politically were on different sides of the spectrum. But I'm just going to share with you. We have manufacturing. We're manufacturers. Eunice, David, and Cindy are manufacturers. We make tea bags. 1.8 billion tea bags. We have operators. We have packers. We have mechanics. We have material handlers. We have hourly individuals. Okay. We have black, Hispanic, white, male, female. We got it all. In Fairfield, I like to call it the closest we're supposed to be to what America is supposed to represent. With the political change in leadership, it came to my attention that we had individuals on the team that were now saying things that were very offensive because they felt it was the right environment now that they could say maybe how they've always felt. I don't know. And I had to call every one of those employees together in a room. And I said, if you're going to take what my family has built for 75 years and 50 years under my parents' leadership about inclusiveness and kindness, and you think you're going to destroy that, I don't give a flying banana. How many years you've worked here? 36, 40 years? I'll fire your sorry ass so fast you don't know what will hit you. <laughs> so, we have to be careful as leaders. We have a big responsibility. People listen. They follow. It gets into their DNA. So I ask all of you every day not to change your political position but to please make sure we are trying to make our country as kind and as positive and as inclusive. I mean, that's the most important thing all of us can do when it's all said and done at the end of the day. <laughs> do you think the swear word's gonna make it onto the radio? 
But can I ask what the reaction was when you, well, when you came at them like that? Well, I will tell you the vast majority, and I would call those that are um, those in positions that are the most vulnerable were obviously ecstatic that the CEO is saying that, and I know I represent my parents' views, and there were the few that were shaking. But that's when that other Cindy will let you know you really need to be afraid of me. You really need to be afraid of me. I will be nice, I'll be kind, but I have no tolerance. And they, 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 they saw that I meant business. Um, I can't change their internal makeup that's in their DNA to be supportive of the situation, but I will let them know that not in these four walls. You may go outside, you may do your thing, you may say your thing, but in these four walls, it will not be tolerated. And even a whisper, I will find out about. So. We hear often that civility is dead in this country. When you're leading a very diverse group of people, we, we know people in this room, we all come from different backgrounds, different political beliefs, but how do we do a better job talking to each other? Because it's, if you say yeah. the wrong thing, immediately the, you know, it becomes very defensive. Even when we do a radio show, if we're talking about a, a president's policy, we get the calls, well, you're being biased. But he's the president of the United States. We need to talk about yeah. these policies and how they yeah. impact all of us. Well, you know, my daughter and I have these conversations a lot. What's acceptable to say, what's not acceptable to say. I think it's important that we try to understand how other people perceive what we say. Because she, she called me out the other day. I said something to someone, and she says, Mom, you know how that might have looked? And my heart was so pure that I don't understand it. But I have to listen. I have to hear what she has to say. If I say this, and this person takes it as that, I need to index it. I, I, I don't think any of us, including yourself, can just live a life of, like, I'm going to say what I want to say because uh, my heart is pure and it's okay or whatever. We need to be understanding. So I need to take that into my DNA when I have conversation. And I need to have it in a way that is inclusive, right? So we just talked about a very, very contentious political situation. I hope I did it in a way that looked like it had tolerance and that it wasn't cutting off uh, the conversation, but it was sharing with you where my heart is uh, on this subject and why my heart is where it is on this subject. So we do need to listen. It is difficult. Um, you know, for me, I have a very hard time if, if conversation is taking place and... Um, I don't feel that, you know, there's any tolerance or listening on the other end as well. But, you know, we need to try to listen to the other side as well, but then also share from our heart what's wrong. And I don't know. I think that everyone is really just coming at it. And I, believe me, I'm a very aggressive opinion on this subject, but we need to really just do the best we can to try to be tolerant of other people's different thoughts and just maybe ask them to explain why if I said this and that was offensive to you, can you walk me through that and then listen to me why I didn't mean it to be offensive. And I think if we can get there, a little deeper, richer conversation on that intolerance, that might help. That's the only thing I could think of. Well, I want to take the time to ask our audience members if they have questions for Cindy Bigelow. Hi, I'm Samantha. I'm from Bethany. And you said that when you're promoting someone or hiring someone, you don't consider gender. So how do you hire? What do you look for in an employee? Well, um, Samantha, for me, you Samantha, right? Yes. Okay. Um, I need uh, someone that I'm going to look at, and I'm going to say they're going to help us be better. They're going to take us to a better place, and they're going to contribute to a culture in a positive way. 
So the underlying skill has to always be there, right? You, you, if you don't have the underlying skill, so it's not like you can't be skilled at the required uh, job. But then there's that spirit. And that doesn't mean you have to be feisty and zippy and blah, blah, blah. No. Um, but I have to look at you and go, you're, you, you're all in. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna help move us to the next direction. And you're going to make us a better family by joining us. So that's, that's what I look like. I don't know if that answered your question, but that is what I look for. Yeah, yeah that's great. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And in the interview, don't be afraid to give a piece of yourself. You know, you got to, you got to, what's the difference? You know, give who you are, uh, you know, give it your all in the interview for them to say, wow, hmm, she's got a lot going on there. That's good. It's good. I think we all want to work for you. <laughs> <laughs> but just a, just little, as a follow-up, just yeah. as a follow-up to Samantha, uh, you know, as women, we are judged by mm -hmm. the way we, um, our character at work. How we look. How we assert ourselves, how we look. Um, oftentimes the example, if you're a woman leader, people look at you and they think of you as kind of bossy, maybe a little bitchy. But if a man is leading, they're seen as strong and it's a, an attribute. I mean, how do we get past that? Well, you know, I went through a bad period um, where I was having a lot going on in my life personally. I'm not looking for sympathy. I just had a lot going on personally. Um, and I thought I was handling it well in the business. And I did get a little bit of this CEO attitude of, eh, I'm the CEO, you guys got to adjust to me. And I will tell you that that did not go well. And sure, maybe you can say that, and maybe that is how some males or some females do it. But I think... You need to be who you are, which is, and I think in, that's not to say that men aren't capable of this, but a woman, I think, brings so much to the table of that extra communication. So if I had to be tough with someone about a particular subject, maybe the male's not going to come around. But Cindy Bigelow, I'm going to come around later and I'm going to say to you, look, you know, I was a little tough right there. I just want to explain to you what was going on. You all right with it? Do you understand what's going on? You know, are you part of it? Feel good? All right, whatever. And leave that person so that they, like, kind of, have that additional communication so they still feel included. So I've worked very hard so that I don't have that reputation of she's just a little blah, blah, blah. I think you shouldn't accept that. I, I don't think that's acceptable as a leader to just, you're allowed to, because you have a title, you can be a little whatever. I mean, believe me, I'm, I'm very tough. If, if you lie to me, you blow any smoke at me, there's, it's a very short, aggressive conversation. But I try to lead in a way that I think is appropriate as a female. Um, and I'm very comfortable with that. And, uh, and I think it, 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 it works because you're, you're, you're doing that extra communication. I think women are exceedingly good at communication. That's my story earlier with my mother. And I come back around so that, you know, yes, I'm aggressive, but I also have a, a sensitive, caring side that I think really adds to the dimension. So you could kind of do both, to be honest. And before we wrap, I have to ask, because you are a Connecticut business, we hear the narrative that it's cheaper to do business elsewhere. People oh, yes. are leaving. Businesses are leaving. Why is Bigelow tea staying? Well, we love Connecticut, and I'm not just saying that. Anyone that knows me and sees any of my interviews, I love Connecticut. I love the people of Connecticut. I love your pace. I love your 
feistiness. I love the way you drive on the roads. I just love you people. You know, I go to some of our other locations and my God, they drive so slow. Um, but I love our school systems. I, you know, I just, I think we're just so fortunate. Um, access to New York City, access to skiing, access to the water. Uh, it's a beautiful state. Um, and as a family business, we don't have shareholders, right? Our shareholders are our employees, right? So we only have to take care of our employees. We don't have to worry from quarter to quarter. So yeah, do we make the most margin in the world? No. If we went off to another state, absolutely. If I went offshore, even more. But that's not how I was raised, um, which hence the conversation before about our employees and, and, and having that culture of love. Um, so this, this is, I can't even begin to tell you, the employees that we have in Fairfield, in our manufacturing, in our corporate headquarters, in our blending, you can't touch them with a 10-foot pole. They are the most dedicated, hardworking, loving, committed people. They will not produce a tea bag with the name Bigelow on it unless they absolutely know it's the best bag possible. So it's just great people. It's a, it's, it's a great state. I don't want to live anywhere else but with all of you. So we're not going anywhere. Cindy Bigelow, president and CEO of Bigelow Tea in Fairfield, Connecticut. Our next Making Her Story is August 8th with Yale astrophysicist Priya Natarajan. More information on our website, WMPR.org. We hope you can join us. Today's show was produced by Lydia Brown. Special thanks to Katie Tolarski, Tim Cohn, Jeff Tyson, Beth Messina, Takia Widow, and the crew at the Warner Theater, including Lynn Gellarmino. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Have a great weekend.